Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of Koi. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is Japanese gardens. Beautiful places. Paul, have you ever seen a Japanese garden? I've seen quite a few. Have you ever seen an American garden? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> pretty different things, right? They don't quite look the same. Like it, it's, it's pretty clear when you're looking at a Japanese garden that it's a Japanese garden. They, they have a lot of distinct features. I'd yeah, say. it's definitely recognizable if you've seen Japanese gardens before. Yeah. So basically the goal with a Japanese garden is to attempt to capture the natural beauty of nature. And, I mean, Western gardens are beautiful in their own way, of course, but they don't quite try to make things look as natural. Like, a lot of times you'll see things organized in rows or in certain geometric organization, right? Yeah, definitely. Whereas in Japanese gardens, there's a purposeful asymmetry involved mm -hmm. to make it look more natural. Yeah, so you're going to see less flowers. A lot of Western gardens have like flower beds. And a lot of times those are organized in certain ways. Or you'll see a bunch of the same kind of flower, you know, in the same area. And it's, it's super clear that people did that. You know, plants don't naturally grow like that usually. Right. So you're going to see less flowers. But Japanese gardens are still very carefully laid out. But their goal is more, they're going for a balance, a sort of harmony between the different plants. And they're not, they're not as ostentatious as a lot of Western gardens, especially like the, the palaces in like France and England, let's say. You got these huge ornate gardens where the trees are all like perfect cones and you know everything's very symmetrical and geometric. Yeah, that's a good example to show the contrast. Mm -hmm. The Japanese gardens are made mostly with natural materials and they take time to select weathered looking stuff stuff that looks natural rather than man-made yeah the idea of the gardens in part is to show time's unstoppable advance mm -hmm. yeah so at first glance it might look like just a really beautiful natural setting but believe me every single thing that you're seeing was placed there intentionally so intentionally that you almost don't realize it was intentionally. Right. Yeah, so uh, a couple of main principles in Japanese gardens are scaled reduction and symbolization. So the scaled reduction piece is about taking like some huge landscape, like let's say you're looking out at a, a big mountain and some giant forest, and you want to encapsulate that, shrink it down, and bring it into this little garden that you can walk around and view. And then the symbolization part a lot of different elements that are brought into Japanese gardens are symbols of other things. So like I said, in that example with the mountain, you might represent that mountain by using a big stone or something like that. Yes, there's uh, so much symbolism going on in every little piece of the garden, it seems. Mm -hmm. Water can also be symbolized by pebbles or sand. Streams or ponds can represent rivers or the sea. It goes deep. Like, you could have a rock that symbolizes an island. You could also have an island that symbolizes a mountain or something else. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's definitely levels to it. Yeah, for sure. 
but we'll get into that more as we go through all the different types of things you're going to see in a Japanese garden later on. Yep. So let's talk about the history of the Japanese gardens just a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. What's the farthest way back <laughs> thing you got for us today, Jason? Well, uh, the furthest back I went was around the 6th or 7th century. Is that where you started out? Yeah, that's what I was seeing too. Okay. So like so many things, Japanese gardens came to Japan from China around the 6th and the 7th century, around the same time that Buddhism came to Japan from China. It was an interesting time. There was a lot of back and forth going on at that time. Yeah, so there was a lot of trade and a lot of merchants brought back ideas from China. And one of those ideas was these gardening techniques. So the aesthetic early on was also influenced by the landscapes on Honshu, the main island of Japan, where the gardens first appeared in Japan. Yeah, so you see a lot of waterfalls and mountains and valley streams and the type of things you see in the Honshu geography. Right. These gardens were also very much influenced by the four distinct seasons in Japan. They don't just have like a really hot season and then a really cold season. Japan seems to be pretty proud of their distinct seasons. So yeah, and it's reflected in a lot of their culture, including gardens. Yeah, we've already talked about how it affects the types of clothes that geisha wear or the types of foods that people eat in different times of the year. Yes. So another thing that influenced the gardens a lot was religion, which makes a lot of sense. We've talked before about how that influenced a lot of things in Japanese culture too. So a lot of times in gardens, you'll see symbols of the lakes of the kami, the shinchi. And uh, we've talked about, I think, how white in Shinto is a symbol of purity, right? So you might see white stones or pebbles, those became a feature of shrines, imperial palaces, temples. Yeah, there's a long history of uh, like white gravel representing a sacred space. Mm -hmm. And you'll see those a lot, especially in Zen gardens too. Yes. Taoism and Buddhism, in addition to Shinto, affected the development of these gardens. There's a, I believe it's a Taoist uh, myth about the five islands inhabited by the eight immortals. So if you see five islands or five stones in a pond... Might be a reference to that. And also, in that mythology, the immortals flew around on cranes, and those islands that they inhabited were on the backs of turtles. So you'll see stones all the time that are supposed to be shaped like turtles or cranes. Pretty cool. Yeah. So if we go back to those earliest gardens, they were built by emperors and nobles, and they tended to be pleasure gardens. And they were usually mostly centered on a lake or a large pond. And they would take boats out onto the lake to view it. And eventually there were artificial islands created, which led to bridges over the islands. Mm -hmm. So they could walk around and get the different views. They used them for festivals, celebrations, poetry writing competitions. Yeah. As for the emperors, I actually had a, a piece. You remember the... Nihongi that we talked about, the, the really early book that tried to bring together all of those Shinto folk tales and stuff from yeah. the 700s, that actually mentions Japanese gardens a few times too. There's a story in there about how in 74 AD, Emperor Keiko 
put carp into a pond, and rejoiced to see them morning and evening. So we're going to talk a bit later about koi. I mean, this is way before koi came to Japan, but interesting that even back then the emperor was watching the carp in the pond in his little garden. Yeah, and that's supposedly the beginning of Japanese gardens. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything before the Edo period? Um, yeah. So Zen gardens first came over to Japan in 1251. The first Zen garden was built by a Chinese monk. Hmm. And a Zen garden is a garden that's used to, you contemplate the garden and it's supposed to bring you closer to enlightenment. So many Zen temples have a Zen garden. Mm -hmm. That's a very distinct style of garden too. We can talk about that a little later, I guess. Yeah. And then in uh, the Momoyama period, which was just before the Edo period, they saw gardens that were built near castles. And the gardens were actually built to be seen from above. Mm. So if you're in your castle, you could enjoy the view of the garden. <laughs> That's funny. So only the royalty got like the best view of the garden. Yeah. And I think that reflects the time too, because it was a little bit of time of instability and warring where you had to be holed up in your castle. Mm. So they built a garden they could enjoy from their castles. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny to see how all of these gardens throughout history were shaped by the circumstances of the time. Yeah, it is. So what, uh, what went on with gardens in the Edo period? Well, guess who's making another appearance, Paul? Guess who's showing up? Here they are. Oh, hey, guys. I'm going to say the Tokugawa shogunate. Yeah, here they are. So when they took power in the early 1600s, uh, there was still an emperor in Japan, but they were kind of holed up in Kyoto and they didn't really have any power. But the shogunate did give them subsidies for gardens. That explains why there are so many beautiful gardens in Kyoto. Yeah, they gave the emperor the money to build these gardens and the culture. So they kept the facade of the emperor still being in power without actually giving the emperor any real power. Mm -hmm. But the pageantry was all there, the art and culture was all there, and that included uh, gardens. Mm -hmm. Also in the Edo period, they started to see a trend of gardens being built as continuations of homes. Mm. Whereas you can like sit on the back porch of your house and it just leads right into garden and you can view the garden and almost be in the garden from your own home. That's cool. I think that may have come partly because it was a time of peace. Yeah. And now you could have a garden in your home because you didn't need to be in a castle with big walls. Yeah, you'd have a lot of samurai living around the imperial palaces, and they would have their own little personal gardens. On yeah, their, every on aristocrat wanted to build their own little private garden. Mm -hmm. So throughout history... Gardens were mostly built by rich people, obviously, starting with you know, the emperors. And then we'd have different types of aristocrats, monks, warriors, you know, samurai, politicians, industrialists. But after World War II, gardens were mostly built by kind of big institutions, such as banks, hotels, universities, government agencies, that sort of thing. Yeah, so most modern Japanese gardens are built as part of the landscape or part of the lands of a large building or building project. Right. Also around that period, there was a lot of influence coming from the West, 
It affected all sorts of things in Japan, and Japanese gardens uh, did not escape that influence. So actually, Shinjuku Gyoen National Garden is a huge garden in, in the middle of Tokyo, and that has French and English elements as well. Yeah, so you started to see some Western ideas come in, but they also still built more traditional gardens as well. There's a really good mix today. Yeah, so these days, you can find all sorts of gardens in Japan. You can find gardens that have survived over hundreds and hundreds of years, or you can find new gardens with you know a more modern style, or you can find new gardens that were inspired by some of those old styles. So there's a huge mix of different types of Japanese gardens. Yep. So do you want to talk about some of the main features of gardens now? Yeah, let's do that. We should probably start with water. I think so too. Water is super important. It's pretty much always present. And if you don't see actual water itself, you're going to see some symbol of water. Like yeah. I, I mentioned before that pebbles or sand can represent water. For example, in those Zen gardens, right, you got the raked gravel. So you got yeah. like these ripples in it. That's you supposed can, to represent ripples of water. You can rake it in different ways. So it looks like a flowing river or it looks like the waves of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And water and stone are both super important. They're, I saw that they're considered the yin and the yang in Buddhism. Yeah, Water I saw and that the stone, too. and they kind of play against each other. You know, there's a balance between the two. So water can represent all sorts of things. We talked about how streams and ponds can represent rivers and the sea. Also, small cascades, little trickles of water down some stones can symbolize giant waterfalls. You know, we're back to that miniaturization idea. Yep. And again, water features are usually man-made to some extent, but they're made to look as natural as possible. Yeah, the lakes and the ponds just look like a natural lake, but they're usually man-made for these gardens. They also, again, put a lot of care into how these water features are placed. So there's something called geomancy that they use to decide which direction the rivers are flowing or you know what shape the uh, ponds are supposed to be. You may have heard of the idea of feng shui. You heard of that, right, Paul? Oh, yeah. The idea that you can set up your house in a certain way to make the chi flow correctly, mm -hmm. something like that. So it's, just, it's not exactly the same. Feng shui is a Chinese idea, but this, this is like a Buddhist geomancy, some Japanese version of geometric divination. There was actually a book called the Sakuteki, written in the 11th century, that uh, translates to records of garden making. And it had all sorts of tips about what direction things are supposed to be facing and, you know, the north, south, east, west, what, what elements you should have in all these different places. And, I mean, the whole idea of this is basically for good luck. Like, you want to set things up in the way that's going to be most beneficial for you and maybe please the kami. So, a lot of times you'll see those ponds, and a lot of times those ponds will have things sticking up out of them, whether it's actual islands like earth coming up out of them, or a lot of times you will see stones. And again, those are representative of islands. So I think that kind of leads us into stone. We talk about stone. Yeah, stone is another extremely common element in uh, Japanese gardens. Mm-hmm. Large stones can symbolize mountains and hills. 
Stones can also be used as building material for bridges or pathways. Mm -hmm. um, smaller rocks and gravel are used to line the ponds and streams. Yep, they could be like a beach or a river. Vertical rocks, uh, like you said, they can be mountains. If they're coming out of the water, they could also symbolize a jumping carp. So that one you might want a more uh, skinny, pointy rock sticking straight up, right? Like yeah. they're all they're all different shapes too. Great they're... care goes into selecting the rocks for these gardens. Absolutely. So much care. And the rocks can be really expensive if they look cool enough. Yeah. Like insanely expensive. They can vary in size and color. You're not going to see really bright colors though, because the idea here is they want rocks with character and signs of age. Like if you want a rock that looks super old, those could be some of the most expensive ones. And yeah. again, it wants, they want it to look really natural and have a balance with everything else around it. So you're not going to see like a bright red rock or something like that. Yeah, they want you to look at that and it looks like that rock's been there for a thousand years. Yeah, yeah. Even so though it was just placed there. Right. So they're going to be really firmly planted. Like you're not often going to see rocks just kind of sitting on the ground like somebody just dropped it there. They're going to be like embedded into something. Yeah, yeah. Um, then also we mentioned a little bit earlier the dry gardens where gravel and sand can symbolize water. And they even use large stones to symbolize waterfalls or islands inside the water. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so one of the fun things I saw about how uh, these rocks need to be in harmony with everything around them and you really want to balance between the different elements, you're supposed to listen to the rocks. You don't, you don't decide where the rock is supposed to go. You listen, and the rock tells you where it's supposed to go. That's yeah. a pretty cool idea. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Should we move on to bridges? Yeah. Okay. So the first appearance of bridges in Japanese gardens was somewhere around the Heian period, which is between 800 and 1100 CE. Yeah. They use them to connect islands or cross streams or ponds. Um, and they did that because the strolling gardens got popular. Yeah. Pro is that, that's the same as like promenade gardens. Right. Them, right. Different ways of saying it. Basically, yeah. you walk through the garden to enjoy the views yeah. as you go. Yeah. The emperor's hanging out with his buddies and they just want to spend a nice day out walking through the garden, checking out all the beautiful views. And if you want your buddies to be able to get over to that island, you need a bridge. Yep. The bridges are usually built of stone or wood, and they can be from as simple as just one big stone spanning a stream to like a 10 meter long covered wooden structure. Yeah, there are all sorts of different styles of bridges. They can be arched or they can be flat. They can be made of different, different things. Sometimes you'll even see just earth bridges you know just kind of a, a land bridge out to this island i guess it's not technically an island if you have that type of bridge but they can also be covered in moss which is one of my favorite elements of japanese gardens personally. i know you're i know you're a moss man <laughs> i sure am <laughs> sometimes you'll see stepping stones instead of a bridge sticking up out of the water yeah definitely some of those are cool i saw one that was like kind of planks across and they were all like angled differently. It, it looked really cool, but mm -hmm. it made a walkway across across the pond. Yeah. I like the arch bridges. 
I always thought those looked like really nice leading from little Island, this little arch bridge. Yeah. Those maybe are painted cool. red. Yeah. So most bridges are natural colors because again, they want to kind of blend in with the scenery, right? But that red, that's from Chinese Zen traditions. The red represents wisdom, transformation, and all that is sacred. And again, these bridges tie in a lot to the religion aspect. Bridges can be symbolic of the path to paradise, immortality, maybe the bridge between the normal world and the afterlife or a higher plane of existence. Interesting. Yeah. So much meaning in every single element that you see. Yeah, there really is. So these days, you'll see bridges a lot of the time, but a lot of times you won't be able to walk on them. A lot of times they're just part of the scenery. But sometimes you can walk across them. It all depends. Yeah. So look for signs before you try to walk across a bridge. (laughs) We move on to fish. Yeah. We mentioned koi earlier. We should probably talk about koi a little bit. Yeah. So koi are colored carp, also known as nishiki goi. They've been bred in Japan, I saw, since about the 1820s. Yep, that's what I saw too. They've been selected and called for the color. Yeah. Specifically. So originally that practice of selectively breeding fish to get these pretty colors, that came from China. In China, they developed goldfish over a thousand years ago. And by the end of the first millennium, they had developed other colors. So you'd start to see white and yellow and like mixes of red and white popping up. So when goldfish were introduced to Japan in the 1820s, like Japan likes to do, they they took that idea and they went even further with it. So in Japan, they developed the what you know as the modern koi. You know, you've probably seen them. Maybe they have a koi pond at... Uh, you know, some Asian restaurant or something. They, they're everywhere, really. Okay. You've probably seen koi somewhere. Or at least paintings of them. They're bright, yeah. colorful fish. Yeah. They're so used these a days, lot in art and paintings. Yeah, they're like a big symbol of Japan these days. And they are a symbol of luck, prosperity, and good fortune. Here's a fun fact about those carp. I mean, they're the same species as just common carp. They're just normal carp. So if you just let them breed however they want to. Yeah. They're just going to revert to a natural color within just a few generations. Yeah. It doesn't take long. They're constantly breeding them to keep these colors and to get new colors. Yeah. It takes a lot of work to to like get the best possible looking koi that you can. And they can be extremely expensive too. A lot of these elements of Japanese gardens can be super expensive, even though just at a glance they look like, oh, it's just, there's some fish. There's some rocks. Right. (laughs) But it's about getting the right rock and the right fish. Yeah, it's a very specific aesthetic they're going for. Yeah. Lanterns. Talk about lanterns. Yeah. You will see a lot of stone lanterns in Japanese gardens. Yep. The word for those in Japanese is daidoro. And those date back to the 700s. So they first popped up at Buddhist temples. Eventually, they started being used in shrines as well. And you'll see a lot of different forms of these lanterns. They can be different shapes and sizes. Different shapes and sizes, yes. But in its original form, there are kind of five pieces of it, and each piece represents an element of Buddhist cosmology. So you got the piece touching the ground, and uh, that piece is the earth element. The next piece up is water, 
And then above that, you'll have the section that's actually holding the flame. You probably guess what element that is. Fire. Correct. Yes. And then the topmost above that are air and spirit. So there you go. Five elements. And the lanterns are commonly paired with water basins in Japanese gardens. Mm. You'll often see the two next to each other. Okay. Another thing, I know I heard this somewhere. I wasn't able to verify it with other sources, but I'm pretty sure I saw somewhere that these lanterns can also be used to like mark a specific viewpoint that they want you to observe. So if you're like walking down a path and you see a lantern, just stop and like try to get get some different angles of that lantern and find like that's probably a spot where you can get a really nice view. Yeah, they didn't just put that lantern there. Like it's there for a reason. Yeah. So we should probably talk about water basins quickly. Um, They're usually made of stone. They can be just a stone with a little bowl cut into it to very elaborate carved things. Um, They're used for ritual cleansing in Shinto. Nowadays in the gardens, they're often decorative only, but you'll still see them with the little bamboo dipper placed Mm. on them um, to show what it's there for symbolically, Mm. even if you're not actually washing your hands with it. Yeah. And if you listen to our Temples and Shrines episode, I believe that was the one where I had the clip at the end of the... uh, the temple in, in Kyoto, right? Where you could hear the running water. That was a, a water basin with like a little bamboo spout sort of thing. Yeah. Pouring water into the basin. That was the one. Should we talk about the plants, the vegetation that goes into these gardens? Yeah, that's a pretty important thing too, I'd say. Yeah. In most types of gardens. Right, right. Trees tend to be very important, mm-hmm. but they also use shrubs lawns, flowers, moss. moss. Yeah, moss, my favorite. And, and speaking of moss, in uh, Kokedera, the moss temple, they have over 100 different species of moss just yeah. in that one garden. Yeah, I found which that Which blows place, me away. Yeah, I found that when I was researching this, and I can't believe I missed that when I was in Kyoto. That sounds like the coolest place. Right? Yeah. So these plants, I mean, everything, again, is very carefully chosen, and they're layered in different ways. You know, they're, they're choosing all these different species of plants to work together, and they're taking into account the seasons, you know, what plants are going to flower, at what time of year are they going to flower. Western gardens, a lot of the time, I feel like in winter, they're just like, oh, that, the garden's dead. We're not going to see anything there until spring, you know? Yeah, you just want to go in spring, maybe high summer. Yeah. And then the garden's kind of over. Yeah, but Japanese gardens, like, they're setting them up to also look beautiful in winter. Yeah, they use things like pine trees, bamboo, and plum trees are all known for their beauty in winter. Mm -hmm. So they will balance it out. So it looks, you get different looks, and it looks good in every season. Right. And again, the religion comes into this part as well. You might see lotuses that are a symbol of Buddhism. The pine is symbolic of longevity. So you mentioned moss. Mosses used to suggest a very ancient scene. You know, we, we talked about how they're setting this up to look very old and weathered in a certain right. way. Right. You see moss growing on something, you think, well, that's been there for a while. Right. Uh, and trees are very carefully trimmed and shaped, but not in the same way that you might see in a Western garden, like topiary is big in English and French gardens, right? You got plants that are 
trimmed in a very specific way to look like something. Like you have perfect spheres or perfect cones or even sculptures, statues made of trees. Not going to see that in Japanese gardens for the most part. Yeah, they're maintained meticulously, but trimmed in a way to like keep a natural look to the plants. Yeah, almost like bonsai trees. You might have seen bonsai trees are very carefully shaped and they even like wind wire around them to get them to grow in certain ways. They use similar techniques in Japanese gardens to get trees to look really like gnarled and like they're, you know, a thousand years old. Yeah. And I think you touched on it earlier. The plants are arranged to imitate nature. Yeah, exactly. You know, rather than lining up a bunch of flowers in a row, things are kind of scattered and placed very deliberately to look like they just happen to grow there. Mm -hmm. And they'll try to make sure that like certain plants aren't blocking the view of other plants because they want these these different layers. You want like a three-dimensional view. You got something in the foreground, you got something in the middle, you got something in the background. Yeah, exactly. All this depth. I also thought it was really cool that uh, to maintain the mosses, they gently sweep them clean of any debris. Yeah. It's crazy (laughs) how much maintenance these gardens take. Like they, they look so effortless and natural, but man, those gardeners are masters of their craft, you know? And I saw in the winter, they use straw to insulate plants and Mm. to protect them from bugs as well. Mm. Also in winter, you'll see sometimes more fragile trees will be supported by wooden poles. They'll have just these big poles sticking out of the ground, propping up branches so that they don't get too heavy and break under the weight of the snow. That's interesting. Yeah. Or even there's another technique where they have one really tall pillar and then From the top of that pillar, they have these cords, like big ropes that reach down and they tie that to branches of the trees to hold those up. It's another way. And that looks pretty cool. Like if you see pictures of it, they, I don't know, it just looks cool with the, all the snow covering all the branches, but then they're, they're kind of being suspended by these ropes. Yeah, that does sound awesome. I talked about topiary, you know, the art of trimming bushes into certain shapes and stuff. And while they don't use quite that same technique, there is something called karikomi, which is a technique of trimming bushes into rounded shapes or balls to symbolize. Again, we talked about how rocks can symbolize water. Plants can also symbolize water by trimming them in this certain way. It's really cool. I'm going to spell it out so that you can Google it. K-A-R-I-K-O-M-I. Look that up. You got these plants like these bushes that look like water like they're flowing they're these really rounded blob-like shapes it's it's pretty cool interesting yeah another common thing we've mentioned before is islands which can be from a single stone to being big enough to have buildings on them Mm -hmm. such as a viewing pavilion they often represent real or mythical islands. And there, of course, is religious symbolism involved in them. Of course. They can be built to resemble turtles and cranes. Turtles and cranes. Our good old symbols of longevity and health. Mm -hmm. Another thing I saw is that hills are fairly common, as in man-made hills and gardens. Let me guess, are those symbolizing mountains? 
They can symbolize mountains or real hills. Oh, that makes sense. They're used a lot in the strolling gardens to break up scenery sometimes or separate parts of the garden from view. Okay. So the last interesting thing I saw about hills is that some of them are actually made to be climbed. And then specifically from the top of that hill, you get a designed view of the garden where it's supposed to look the best or you get a certain view from a top of a hill. Nice. Well, should we talk a bit about, we've covered kind of all the different things you might see there, but let's talk about some of the techniques that they use to bring all these together to create kind of a cohesive experience in the garden. Yeah, I was alluding to uh, something when I talked about the hills and the dividing the views between the garden. Yeah, so that technique is known as concealment. You're concealing parts of the garden so that maybe when you turn a corner or you crest a hill, all of a sudden you're presented with this new view of the garden. And you can use all sorts of things to conceal parts of the garden. You got those hills, you got big trees maybe maybe got like a wall out of made out of bamboo uh, there can even be like structures used to conceal parts of the garden so that as you walk along this path you're going to see something new like it makes it a whole experience you're you're discovering new things as you go yeah you can be walking around a pond feeling kind of out in the open and then you go around a corner where there's some trees And all of a sudden you can't really see the pond anymore and there's a small stream and it's darker and secluded and it's just a totally different feel even though you're in the same garden. Yeah, pretty cool. I I mentioned at the beginning, I think miniaturization, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea that everything is kind of shrunk down and they're, you know, they're trying to present an idealized view of nature. They're bringing everything from out in the world and bringing it into this smaller space so you can experience it all at once. Yeah, mountains, rivers, waterfalls, lakes, beaches, all in a garden, but Mm -hmm. all just smaller to scale to fit. Yeah. Uh, Asymmetry is another one we mentioned. You don't want things to be, you know, obviously played with by humans. (laughs) You want it to be as natural looking as possible. Yeah. And... This is one of my favorites, borrowed scenery. Yeah, and borrowed scenery is where parts of the landscape that aren't actually in the garden can be seen from the garden. And this is often done purposefully, where there's mountains maybe in the background as a backdrop, and it makes the garden feel a lot bigger and Mm -hmm. less confined. Yeah, yeah, and they'll like figure out how to frame that element. You know, if you have a mountain in the background, maybe you have... I mean, you're, you're going to be considering that viewpoint very carefully and figuring out how to best accentuate that element with the things surrounding it. Yeah, the side where you can see the mountains on, there might be less trees or hills, so you get a clearer view of the mountains in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, this is you know adding so much depth. Like we talked about how all the plants are layered in a certain way. This backdrop, the, the borrowed scenery, is just another, another layer yeah. It's giving it so much depth. And uh, another interesting note I thought is that in a lot of modern gardens, usually not planned, but sometimes planned, skyscrapers end up being borrowed scenery. Hmm. Yeah. I actually just posted a picture on Instagram of Shinjuku Gyoen that has a couple skyscrapers <laughs> in the background. 
That's yeah. a cool place. Have you been to Shinjuku Gyoen? Yeah. It's cool how it's just like this huge green space in the middle of this giant city. And there are places in there where you can just get lost and be like, it definitely does not feel like I'm in the middle of a big city. I love all the parks and gardens, especially in the middle of cities. It is so cool to be in a city in an urban environment, just pop into a beautiful green space. Yeah. And it's quiet and feels like you're a thousand miles away. Yeah, totally. You know, on my first trip to Japan, I was staying in Ikebukuro, actually at a place that I know you have also stayed. And uh, I walked down the street and I was just exploring, you know, I just kept walking down the street just to see where I would end up. And eventually I got to this little neighborhood and I'm walking down these really narrow streets in this small little neighborhood. And all of a sudden I come across this Japanese garden. This was in Mejiro. And I'm so jealous of the people that live around there. I mean, we have parks and stuff around neighborhoods here in the U.S., but they have this amazing Japanese garden just like nestled into this little neighborhood and they can go sit there and hang out with the koi whenever they want. That's cool. Amazing well, that's place. Cool. We've got one Japanese garden in town. It's not particularly close, but yeah, it's pretty nice. I've been there yeah. a few times. Yeah, you can find the style of garden in the U.S. in certain places, but obviously there are way, way more of them in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you go to Japan, check out some gardens. And honestly, if you're going to see some temples and shrines, they'll be hard to miss because most temples and shrines yeah, will have a garden. I was going to say we didn't them. really mention that earlier, but mm -hmm. yes, many gardens at temples and shrines. Yep. That's about all I got. I think that's all I got too. All right. So I guess that's the end of the episode. Yeah. Well, you want to you want to find more, maybe see some pictures of Japanese gardens, check out our website at www.sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Yes, and, please do. Yeah. And what are we talking about on the next episode? Vending machines. I'm excited. I think that's going to be a really fun one. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, because they sell all sorts of things in Japanese vending machines that you will not find here. They're a lifesaver when you're traveling in Japan. Yeah. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time for vending machines.